Well, we're turning to 1 Samuel for our reading this evening, 1 Samuel chapter 5. Concerning the Ark of the Lord, which had been uh, transferred or taken into the um, into the presence of the of Israel's enemies, the Philistines. So, one Samuel five, verse one. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod and he ravaged them and struck them with tumours, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumours broke out on them. (coughs) Therefore they sent the ark of Ek to Ekron, the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out saying, They have brought the ark of God of Israel to us to kill us. And our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumours. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Well, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5 this evening. A very interesting passage of scripture. I think you'll agree, it's quite graphic. And um, as I mentioned somewhere along the line this evening, um, it um, speaks about the time that the Ark of the Lord, which symbolises, you know, the very presence of God in Israel's history... Um, was captured by the Philistines. And here, in chapter 5, the Ark of the Lord is taken into enemy territory. So it's taken into the Philistine territory. Um, which is, So Israel's come some, some, it's covered some mileage in its recent history prior to this. In chapter 4, um, going back to chapter 4, um, Israel 
the Ark of God has been captured there initially by the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. And um, not only that, it, in conjunction with that, the Israelites suffered some of their worst defeats and lost thousands upon thousands of military men. So, you know, things were not looking too good for the nation of Israel at this particular time. It was a, probably, I would say, one of the darkest times, if not the darkest time, really, for the nation of Israel. And um, the only glimmer of hope, really, on the horizon was the prophet Samuel, who was speaking the words of truth to the nation of Israel, was giving them some sense of hope and direction in a very, very spiritually dark time. And actually, you can sort of match the analogies, really, to the world in which we're living today. Um, uh, very little comparatively of the Word of God. There was a famine. There's a famine of the Word of God, isn't there? in our times that we're living in today, generally speaking. Certainly in our nation, that is so, so true. Uh, and times, in some senses, could not be darker. And we ask the question, where is the Lord in times like this? Just as Israel were asking many, many centuries ago, where is the Lord when the Philistines, our very enemies, take the ark of the Lord away from us, when we've suffered these terrible, terrible uh, consistent defeats at the hands of our enemies. Where is God now? Where is the Almighty now in our current circumstances? And even that symbol of the very presence of God taken into enemy territory. You, you just imagine that. Um, I mean, the Philistines thought actually they'd captured the Ark of the Lord. What they were going to see, as we shall see this evening, was actually the Lord in the form of the Ark of the Covenant who captured them. It was the other way around in reality, but they saw it quite differently. Or well, certainly the Philistines saw it differently. So who were the Philistines? Just a little introduction to them. Um, well, we, what we do know of the Philistines is that they were a military might of their day. They were a powerful military machine in their time and in their generation. They were known as the seafaring Philistines. Um, which actually, interestingly, connects to Dagon that we shall see later because Dagon was considered to be half fish and half man. Well, that's in part at least due to their seafaring ability um, on, the, on the oceans. Um, so they were quite an advanced people in that sense. And um, there's a word that, that links in the Greek to them, known as tyrannos, which means and indicates what they were. They were, they were basically seen as, as rulers. They were tyrants in that sense of the word. They were kind of all powerful, or at least thought they were, in their day and generation. So this is what Israel was dealing with. And so what we do see here in our passage tonight is the faithfulness of God himself, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, um, who is always faithful to his word, and he will always ultimately deal with his enemies and the enemies of the Lord's people. We can see that without doubt here. We see the Lord's sovereign dealings with this rebellious people, the Philistines. Um, and um, it's interesting because um, I think it's in chapter 4, actually, that... that um, the word of the, it says in verse 1, chapter 4, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel, and I was quite struck by that, all Israel. And I got that sense that that was Israel at that time historically, so there are historical lessons to take from this as well. 
but also it's a history that's pointing to the future at the same time. So what the Lord was doing here with Israel <coughs> was in a sense going to be replayed later on as well. Very interestingly. <coughs> now there's um, a passage that I was going to develop a little bit this evening but um, I did hear um, quite recently that you've been going through Daniel so I didn't want to develop this but Daniel chapter 2 is quite significant and in certain respects connects quite well with this passage that we're looking at this evening. Um, when we read there that all Gentile powers basically that oppose themselves to the God of Israel will ultimately be destroyed. Now you probably no doubt saw this in, in Daniel chapter 2. So you've got this vision that disturbed Nebuchadnezzar so greatly <coughs> and disturbed his sleep. And he sees this, this great sort of this great vision before him and he doesn't understand that nobody can answer. Nobody can give the king the interpretation of this, <coughs> except for the prophet Daniel. And basically what it was, was a vision, wasn't it, concerning the, uh, the nation of Babylon, that was at the head of this, this great image. And then that was, that was taken over by the Medes and the Persians in the silver, so you've got the gold, the silver. And then you've got the Grecian Empire a little bit further down. Um, typified by the tremendous deceits of defeats of Alexander the Great. And then you've got the Roman Empire, which sort of divides somewhat. And then you've got the, the, um, the feet of iron, uh, the legs of iron and the feet of, of, of clay. And the mixture, the two don't adhere, of course, iron and clay. And then at the end of all that, these great empires, they come and they go, and they're superseded by another one and another one, and the Roman Empire... Which, to my understanding, the Roman Empire hasn't actually been, was never militarily defeated. Um, it just sort of started to weaken, basically. And that's why some commentators say, suggest that there's going to be a revived Roman Empire in the days yet ahead. That we're going to see more of that. We can see something of that, I think, forming in these days that we live. But it's very interesting what we read there. In Daniel, but ultimately, what the prophet Daniel shows very clearly is that there's going to be a stone cut out without human hands that is going to smite the very the feet of that great image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, and everything is going to come tumbling down. Everything actually that opposed itself or dared to oppose itself against the Almighty God is going to ultimately come crashing down. Before the presence of Almighty God. And that's the testimony of Scripture. And we see this, as we shall see, with Dagon a little here in type this evening. Exactly the same kind of thing happening. Uh, Gentile rebellion against the Almighty God is ultimately going to be crushed. And we can see all the things, elements of rebellion in our society today. So many things culminating together, converging together to oppose the almighty God. <coughs> Is the Lord ultimately going to deal with this in his time, at his appointed time? And the answer is yes, he will. He will deal with these things in his own appointed and according to his own appointed time. <coughs> all of these things, immorality, all these different agendas occultism, everything 
is going to ultimately be smitten by this stone that has been cut out, but not with human hands. And he's going to smite the image. So that's just a bit of a background this evening. And I want to just think of, of three areas really this evening. Firstly, the fall of Dagon, which we read about in verses 1 to 5. And then the response of the Philistine rulers and their arrogance in verses 6 to 12. And then the reply of the Lord to this. Firstly, verse 1, we're going to think about the fall uh, of Dagon. Verse 1 following, actually. And it says there... um, the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. Um, so this was basically a Philistine idol. I've mentioned the origins of it. This, it was thought to be half fish, half, half human. Um, it was also thought that Dagon was actually the, the father of Baal in the Old Testament that we read about. In the times of Elijah and so on. When he faced the, the prophets of Baal, you remember. What's interesting about the prophets of Baal, though, is we, we would tend to think, oh, they're, they're pagans, you know. Um, these, these, these people never knew the Lord. <laughs> um, they never professed any faith. Actually, that's not true. The, the prophets of Baal were actually apostate Jews who, who once knew better, who once understood better things. And so Baal... Um, uh, which was basically linked to a, it was basically considered to be a fertility idol. So it sort of controlled the fertility of the land, um, which again fits very much with what we're seeing, doesn't it, in our woke culture today, with all this emphasis today on things like um, uh, ecology and the the planet and saving the planet and... uh, CO2 gases and all this sort of thing that we're hearing so much about today. There is nothing the Bible says, there is nothing new under the sun. So when you look, there's, there's four main idol, uh, idols in the Old Testament. You know, you, you mentioned Molech, for instance, you know, child sacrifice. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. These things happen. People pass their children through the fire and incurred the wrath of God. Uh, Baal, I could speak much about each and every one of them, but Baal this evening, just to give you that sort of insight into it, was very much one of these fertility gods. So, but what was interesting about it was that the people of Israel were seduced into Baal worship very, very relatively easily. And what it tended to do was it tended to kind of converge, it tended to fuse both truth and error, together. So there were elements of truth about it, but there was also very strong elements of falsehood about this this idol. That was very subtle for the Israelites. You know, if something is completely off the ball, then then it's wrong. But what the Israelites had to learn, and they did, 
through, through many things that happened to them, they had to learn this lesson, was that when you add something that is false to something that is true, it never becomes true. It always becomes false. If you add something that is false to what is true or true to what is false, you've just got a mixture. And the Lord says, doesn't he, in many places in the Old Testament, he doesn't like mixture of that kind. He won't accept mixture of that kind. We read that in Leviticus. But this was such a subtle form of temptation to the Israelites that many of them actually did fall into, very, very sadly. Mixing truth with error will never do. God will never accept that at all. But there's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) These things are replaying themselves today as well. But the Lord here was going to show this dumb idol who was God and who was really God. That was what was going to happen here this evening, as we see in the passage before us this evening. And so what happens, as we, as we read there earlier, is that uh, Dagon, who sat aside the, um, the Ark of the Lord, set in its place the first time they arose early the next morning, and there was Dagon fallen on his, get, fallen on his face to the ground. Now, the first time that this happened is interesting because um, what do the Philistines do? They say, well, this is, this is remarkable. You know, this is powerful. This is, this is supernatural that Dagon has fallen to the ground like this. What are we going to do? And rather than inquiring of the Lord in that situation, they put the Dagon back up into its place again. They put him back into position. And then the next day, the same thing happens again. Dagon falls to the ground again. And this time his head is in another place. (laughs) And his hands are removed as well. As somebody put that, um, very very succinctly I suggest, the head of Dagon, the seat of wisdom, and the hands, the instruments of action, were cut off this idol completely. His head broken off, his hands cut off, prostrated to the ground. It's the same today, isn't it? Exactly the same. You know, people think that the God of Israel, the God of the Christian, is irrelevant. That is powerless. Now this is the realm of the supernatural. This, this great thing toppling over without any effort. Human effort. This was a miracle. But the sad thing is that godly, godless people don't become any more sensitive usually to the Lord. What the Bible often suggests is that they become more and more insensitive to the Lord. And resist more and more And more. If you read the book of Revelation, you'll see that happening. Throughout the period of the tribulation, rather than people becoming more and more humble at the awful events that are being poured out on them and the judgments of God that are being poured out on them, they become more and more resistant. They become more and more hard-hearted. And this was exactly what was happening with these Philistine enemies of Israel in this passage before us tonight. 
But the Lord is not irrelevant. He is absolutely effective. And every idol that dares to stand in the way of the Almighty God will be brought to nothing. And that's a challenge, isn't it? On a macro scale, but it's also a challenge on a more micro scale in the areas of our lives, isn't it? Because we can all be subtly, just as the Israelites were, be drawn into areas of idolatry in our own lives and not even realise that these things are taking the place of or more important than the Lord to us. Very subtle, isn't it? Idolatry is very subtle. Not just something that the Israelites of old struggled with, certainly, but equally as relevant to us today. But ultimately, these things, as the Psalms bring out in various places, these idols will never stand in the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was there, and they were not, this Dagon idol was not going to stand before the presence of Almighty God. It was not going to do that. Colossians chapter 1 <clears throat> contains some interesting words in this respect. Colossians chapter 1. And uh, verse 15. <clears throat> and just exalts the Lord Jesus for who he is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And so the Lord Jesus wants us to have put our trust in him alone. Um, interestingly, that was something that the Israelites also had to learn in, in chapter 4. You see, they were looking to the Ark of the Covenant as something that was just going to automatically deliver them. From the Philistines. They had to learn this. They had to learn this lesson the hard way. You know. We, we can't just have a, a kind of. Almost a superstitious trust. In something like that. Our trust. And this is what the prophet Samuel. Was bringing Israel back to time and time again. Was to be in the very God of Israel. The maker of heaven and earth. And how easy even ourselves, even we ourselves, can fall into that area of thinking as well. You know, anything, nothing should ever take the place of complete and absolute trust in Almighty God for who He is and for all that He can and will do for us. It has to be in Him alone. Well, number two, let's just think about the response of the Philistine rulers to all of this. How did they respond? Well, I've touched on it a little <clears throat> and when the men of Ishdod, verse 7, Ashdod, sorry, verse 7, saw the way it was, they said, The ark of God of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us, 
and Dagon our God. They were very protective over their idolatry, you see. Very protective. The hand of God is harsh against us. There was a lot of self-pity there in that statement. There was a lot of feeling sorry for themselves. Oh yes, things, things aren't going too well for us now. The tide has turned. We dealt Israel a tremendous blow. But now, you know, things aren't going so well with us. As we thought it might. There's a lot of self-pity there, just as it is in our society today, by the way. Um, more than you think, our society is... Um, very much governed by a philosophy known as culturally Marxist, basically, in its thinking. And a lot of this is this kind of victim mentality. You know, oh, woe is me. How, you know, I, I'm under discipline and it must be somebody else's fault. It can't be my fault. It can't be my responsibility. You'd be surprised, even many of the institutions that people look to today are driven by this kind of ideology. It's a culturally Marxist ideology. And we have to be very, very aware of this. It's creeping so much into the West. And the West are falling for it. Um, the, West is, the West is adept, actually, I would say. The West that we're living in, that's had so many privileges of freedom and things like that, the West is becoming increasingly adept at destroying itself through this kind of thinking. And it's sad. Once Great Britain, once a nation that at least had some bearing on the word of God, at least had some respect for Christianity, uh, couldn't be further now from that, sad, from that um, reality that we once enjoyed. So what do they say? They say, right, you know, they gather all the lords of the Philistines together and they say, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? What shall we do with this burdensome thing that we have taken? I mean, it was their responsibility. They'd had the audacity to take the ark of the Lord and take it into Philistine territory away from the Israelites. And now they want to get rid of it. As quickly as they can. And so what do they say? Verse 8. Let the ark be carried to Gath. Who lived in? Who was, who was from Gath by the way? <laughs> you can answer if you like. Or I'll answer the question for you. Um, Goliath. David and Goliath. Well this huge man. Nine feet something tall. This giant of a man. Was from the, the city of Gath. Um, which is interesting, because this is what the Israelites were up against as they came against the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. And then it says, then God's hand was heavy against them. And so the ark goes then to Ekron, all cities of the Philistines, verse 10. Verse 11, they assembled the Philistines, lords, who said, send away the ark of the Lord and let it go back to its place so that it does not kill us and our people. They'd seen what had happened to their idol. You know, they're thinking quite rightly, if we don't deal with this, this could happen to our, our own people. Send it away. Well, when Jesus was on the earth, 
There's an interesting passage in, in the Bible, Mark chapter 5, verse 17. And, and Jesus actually healed, he set free a demoniac man who was actually possessed of um, many, a multitude of demons. He was beside himself. His, his mind was completely taken siege by these demonic spirits within him. And Jesus sets him free. And Jesus doesn't cause, but he allows, you remember, all those demons. Once he's set him free, and the man's transformed, he allows those demons to go into the pigs, who will then go into the water, and are drowned. And what do the people say? And it, it's always struck me in that passage, the people pleaded with Christ to leave the area, and not to return. That was the attitude, you see. Of the enemies of Jesus. Even then light was exposing darkness. And they say what's their response? Not this is tremendous what's happened to this man. But they say. Get the source of light out of this area. They pleaded with Jesus to go. And that's a replay of what's happening here. With the Philistines. Because they love darkness rather than light as the bible says why because their deeds were evil now i want to just finish by thinking about the reply of the lord this evening how does the lord respond ultimately to this well one thing we can sure be sure of whether it's idolatry whether it's personal sin whether it's arrogance before the lord whatever it is the lord is not mocked the bible says that God is not mocked. He'll never be mocked. People think they can mock God on the, on the media and on the television screens. And they think, oh, we can say what we like about Jesus. And it doesn't matter to them. <coughs> the reality is very different, though, that God is not mocked. That what we sow, we shall also reap. And that's a universal law. Uh, that, that applies actually to everybody. That applies to non-Christians as much as Christians. If we sow to things that we shouldn't sow to, we're going to reap corruption. That's the reality. So the Lord is not mocked. And we need to be very understanding of that because uh, he is the almighty God. And he is the sovereign God. And he has the last word in every situation that occurs in our lives or in the as I mentioned, the, the bigger affairs of our, uni, of our world that we live in today. And with nations. Verse 6 tells us, but the hand of the Lord was heavy against them. The hand of the Lord was against them. The men of Ashdod. Not particularly PC to say that these days, is it? God, God against certain people. I mean, God loves everybody, doesn't he? That was the motivator, wasn't it, of the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believe on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That was the motivator. But equally, when people continue to resist the Lord, the Lord often says in his word, and we read this time and time again in the Old Testament particularly, I am against you. And when, and when somebody hears that statement... That's usually a step too far for people, isn't it? 
But by the Lord will not always, he'll not always strive with men. And the Lord was against them. He struck them with tumours, literally malignant, malignant tumours affecting their hind parts. I don't want to describe it, but you kind of get the thrust of what we're trying to say here, hopefully. This was a very unpleasant, a very undignified situation that they were actually struck with, painful and humiliating, a bit like the, um, the boils that occurred in Exodus on man and beast. Exodus chapter 9 verse 8 tells us that. Um, worse than, well, worse than things we've seen in recent years, like monkeypox and the like, far worse. This was the most horrible thing. So plague and pestilence and things like that, that I think we will start to see more of in the days that come, actually, if you read the Bible on these things, um, are not always coincidental. You know, the Lord can allow these things to happen in his wisdom. Um, let me just read a couple of things from Revelation to, to indicate this. The book of Revelation. There's a couple of verses that illustrate this. Re uh, Revelation chapter 9 which I believe is yet future. Some people don't see it like that. But that's my persuasion. Verses 20 to 21. I just want to show you, this is the period of the tribulation. And it's going to be a terrible time. You, if you think things are difficult on the earth now, just get a foretaste of what things will be in the future on this earth. Well, Revelation tells us, it says, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they are pestilences, plagues that I've just mentioned, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, whether it's Dagon or whoever it is, silver, brass, stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. There you go, that's idolatry. And they, even though they're seeing these awful things, the plagues that the, the Philistines had seen and witnessed, it's, not gonna be, it's gonna be history replaying itself again in the future. The heart of man is still alienated from almighty God they see the plagues and even those who had not been killed by the plagues <coughs> they did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and brass silver stone and wood and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality all their thefts. Interesting word, sorcery, in the Greek, by the way. Very interesting. The word for sorcery, particularly later on, but I haven't checked that particular word, but it's, um, it's a word called pharmakeia. Isn't that interesting? Pharmakeia. Wow. And uh, we, we read all sorts of things, all sorts of plans, you know, that the World Health Organization now is going to it's got a treat. They're looking at a treaty. I don't think it's yet formulated precisely, but they're 
they're looking to have control over medical establishments in, in different countries. And they have, they've got the final say. Well, it's interesting. Isn't it? You read the word of God. And you read a word like that sorcery, pharmakeia. Very interesting, isn't it? Where is it all heading? Well, the sad thing is, these people did not repent. So we read that twice in that passage. And then there's... Um, uh, that, that's up to tw verse 21. And then 9 verse 6, going back a little bit there, just to give you the sense of this. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. That's how terrible things are going to be. And verse 6, 15 to... Um, sorry, chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. So back a few chapters, sorry. To give you the sense of this. Yeah. And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men and the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? That's the wrath of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus there. So godless people, rather than getting softer and softer, generally become harder and harder towards the mighty God. You, know, you give somebody the word, you're trying to help them, you're trying to minister to them. And rather than using that and allowing the Lord's word to germinate in their hearts and transform them, they're resisting it and becoming harder and harder and harder. I've shown you a few scriptures that indicate that this evening. There's nothing new under the sun. It's going to get worse in that respect before the great and awesome day when the, the rock that's been cut out, not with human hands, is going to smite that image that we read about in Daniel chapter 2. That's going to happen. And so the same happens in Gath here, in context. The hand of the Lord was against the city with a great destruction. Verse 11, there's a development in Ekron. Deadly destruction throughout all the city. And the hand of the Lord was heavy there as well. Verse 12, and the men who did not die there were stricken with the tumours. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. So these progressive judgments against the Philistines which I believe, and even in some sense, I think the prophet Samuel was aware of, all Israel, the historical connection to that, what was happening to them presently, but even that future sense of history as well, recurring, was aware of this as he utters his prophecies and encouragements and the word of the Lord to Israel at that particular time. All of these things are going to be replayed before Jesus returns. I just want to close with a, a verse from 2 Corinthians. And then we're going to come round the Lord's table shortly. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 14 to 17.
Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are, as the Lord's people, the fragrance to God, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity. But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So may the Lord bless you this evening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the good word of the Lord. And uh, I'm sure we can all take some of those lessons, reflect on them, and avoid falling into some of the pitfalls that even the Israelites fell into.